0: What's gonna happen tonight? What's gonna happen? We're gonna whoop their. Have you gotten Rommel yet? Welcome into the Diamond Balls podcast and Go Vols 247com I am Ben McKee. Coming to you live on Father's Day morning from my hotel room, hotel lobby, I should say, in Omaha, Nebraska, where Tennessee lost to LSU 6-3 on Saturday night at Charles Schwab Field to start the College World Series. Joined on this edition of the pod by the one and only Will Heflin. Uh, Will, how are you this morning?
1: I'm all right, man. Uh, Happy Father's Day to Mr. Heflin George. He is a, a baller and a saint, uh, so quick shout-out there. But, man, a little disappointed this morning um, trying to stay positive and think think about what's ahead.
0: Ooh, that, that road ahead is is quite tough, not, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but uh, Tennessee will now play Stanford in an elimination game on Monday, early afternoon, and if they win that, then they turn around on Tuesday, and they'll play the loser of Wake Forest and LSU, and then if they win that game, then they have to turn around and beat whoever wins the Wake Forest-LSU game twice, and I believe that's four straight days uh, that that they will play, if, if I'm not mistaken, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and... They will all be elimination games. So, so talk about a tough week. You got to knock off Stanford. Then you have to knock off one of Wake or LSU, and then you have to knock off the other one twice. So uh, talk about the road ahead. It is, it is quite the, the gauntlet. Uh, but will I, I do want to wish you a, a happy Father's Day. I, I know you're a proud fur daddy, uh, th- this, this morning. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, happy Father's Day to my dad as well. Shout out to Scott McKee for, uh, always putting up with me and, and his, Unconditional support, it, it means the world. And you, and, yeah. and
1: you. Happy Father's Day to you.
0: Thank you, I appreciate that. First Father's Day, hate that it's on the road, but at least it is Omaha. It's a nice consolation prize, and uh, because Tennessee played on Saturday night, I got to to spend a little extra time with good old Knox before I hit the road, uh, although that did end up in a hectic travel day for me on Saturday. Gotta got love waking up at 445 for a 707 flight to, to, to an email that there's a mechanical issues with your plane. It's been delayed three hours. You're now going to miss your connection in Denver. And we've rebooked you on a one Oh seven flight out of Nashville. And you're going to land 45 minutes before first pitch in in Omaha. So that I never thought I'd be so happy to see a lightning delay. And and that delay, the start of Tennessee's game, because that that literally helped me make it by first pitch. I would not have uh, without that weather delay uh, will, but uh, last night, we, we can talk about the umpire here in a moment, but uh Paul Skeens was, was Paul Skeens. I mean, he's a, a generational talent, and uh, we kind of talked about it on the podcast leading into Omaha. It's the World Series. There, there's eight teams. It's like the Elite Eight, Final Four in basketball. Like, you're going to play great teams, and, and you're going to play great arms, but boy, you talk about the two arms that, that Tennessee has opened with in, in the College World Series appearances uh, under Tony Vitello, Andrew Abbott there for Virginia a couple of years ago. I mean, the guy's what thrown 20 straight scoreless innings to start his major league career, which is a record, uh, major league record. And then now Paul Skeens, who is as good of a pitching prospect, if not better than Steven Strasburg at, at the college level and and just in an all generational talent and, and boy was he rocking and rolling early and often last night although I really shouldn't say early and often I, I thought Tennessee kind of saw him well in that first inning made him throw 20 pitches and, and look I mean you don't want to strike out I'm, I'm not trying to give a participation trophy out but Maui sees several pitches uh, Hunter Ensley hits an infield single that was only an infield single because Jordan Thompson made a a nice play in the hole to, to stop it from trickling into the outfield and then I kind of wonder in hindsight what happens in that inning if Jared Dickey, who absolutely smokes a baseball, if it's not right at Tommy White and maybe gets down the line and you have second and third with with a runner on third or uh, with, with one out, that could be a different inning. But even after that, Christian Moore saw several pitches before striking out. Uh, looking so they made him throw 20 pitches in the first inning and and I I thought that was a good early sign but after that I mean Paul Skeens was was rocking and rolling I believe he retired seven straight after that and six of them were via (laughs) strikeouts and in that second inning he was a pitch away from an immaculate inning
1: yeah he was on point and he did kind of have first inning jitters which is no surprise it doesn't matter who you are when you're in when you're in Omaha and on that stage it's completely normal and to be expected and like you said man i'm thinking of Dickey's ball in the first and that ball uh i believe it was the seventh that burke hit off of him that was just an absolute seed to cruise and center seemed like the few that we were able to square up were just right at him, and against against that it's kind of like well you really can't afford for those to be caught and like simo had one um it was kind of like a sinking liner into left field. Uh Pearson made the play on. It was kind of in the middle innings. Um, they they were really good defensively. And the way he was rolling, that's um that's not a good that's not a good combination for, for the opposition, which in this game was us. Um, but then you know on the flip side they kind of had some they had some big swings, some really good swings and timely, but they also had some bleeders like Dylan Cruz's leadoff double one inning was a bloop. And it's just like that's why baseball's so weird. And it's like I really, I really don't think they outplayed us, like for the most part. Um, but you kind of you gotta catch some breaks against Skeens. And when you don't, that's when you see him go seven and two thirds. And we finally were able to chase him, and you kind of feel like oh, here we go again. Here's another ninth inning comeback in Omaha. Cause we had already seen what three, all three games, the, the team going into the ninth winning, uh, lost. So it's kind of like, Hey, we're right where we, where we need them, um, to at least have a shot. And then the, the Joe bears solo kind of took the wind out of those sails and gave the momentum back to them. And at that point, um, who was it? Riley Cooper was in the game and he had a nice nine inning, ninth inning to, to seal the deal for, for the Tigers.
0: Yeah, I I agree, Will. I, I don't really think that Tennessee played all that poorly. I, I think maybe the pitching staff as a whole could have been a, a little more crisper, Um, you know, six runs. And, and I know it's LSU's lineup. Like, it's a, a tall task and at times feels like an impossible task. And, and we saw last night why – that LSU lineup is so good like Dylan Cruz and, and Tommy White like it didn't even really feel like they they did a ton I, I know Dylan Cruz had a couple of base knocks but he didn't have like the one big base knock that Dylan Cruz typically has and uh, Trey Morgan had some really good situational at bats uh, the RBI ground out the sack fly to, to deep center field but to my point, what makes that LSU lineup so great is the the bottom of that lineup. And Gavin Dugas absolutely launched the baseball uh, to give LSU an early lead. Uh, Braden Joe Bear, man, that kid was was really, really, really good. Uh, had a triple, a double, and a home run. Uh, drove in two runs, scored two runs. That that bottom of the lineup, people forget about Hayden Travinsky, Josh Pearson, Jordan Thompson. Like, those guys would be middle of the lineup for, for just about anybody in the country, but because of what's at the top of, of LSU's lineup behind Beloso and and White and uh, Cruz and, and Morgan, like, those guys are kind of forgotten about because you get through that that top of the lineup, which I, I feel like Lindsey did a, a pretty good job of for the most part, and, and even Halverson, but w- once you get you, you kind of get through it and you're like, okay, I can take a deep breath now, but you can't because that LSU lineup is ridiculous. I, I thought Wes made a great point to me in the hotel room last night. It, it's kind of like the last couple of years with Tennessee being able to to stick Luke and Evan and down at the bottom of the lineup, s- kind of sneak them in there at the seven and, and eight spot just because the top of the lineup is 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 so ridiculous. So I honestly thought last night was was more about Paul Schemes than Tennessee. I I, I kind of thought Tennessee played pretty well all things considered, uh, aside from, again, maybe the, the pitching staff could have been a, a little cleaner, but again, I, I thought they did about as good a job as possible given who they were facing and just how difficult of a lineup that is to navigate. And and I thought Griffin Merritt made a great point after the game. You know, against a guy like Paul Skeens, you, you kind of need the breaks to go your way. You, you need a couple of balls to, to drop in here and there, and I agree with what you said. LSU's defense was tremendous last night, and they had they had the outfield specifically had Tennessee shaded perfectly all game long. And Jay Johnson, LSU's head coach, actually gave a a shout out to one of his assistants. I don't know his name off the top of my head, but uh, he he said that he believes he's the the best in the country at positioning the outfield, and I'm I'm sure he's obviously talking about his guy there. So it's, he's gonna. Uh, talk it up a a little bit, but I I noticed that during the game. It it seemed like the four or five line drives that that Tennessee did hit to the outfield, Dylan Cruz or or Josh Pearson were positioned perfectly, uh, and and they made a couple of nice catches, like the one you mentioned, Pearson down the the foul line on on that Christian Moore uh, hit that was kind of uh, down the line. Uh, So the, the ball didn't necessarily drop in like you would like for it to uh, against a guy like Paul Skeens as as Griffin Merritt and and I thought it was interesting that Tony, uh, thought that that Skeens pitched them backwards, uh and and I'll let you explain a little more in depth what what that means, but uh they they did not expect him to throw as many change ups as he did last night. I mean the the fastball was popping. Everybody was talking about it on social media and on the broadcast apparently. Um, but even Jared Dickey told me, I asked him off to the side post-game when we were doing the media scrum, the the, the tournament is a little bit different, so uh, we kind of get an open locker room while Tony and two players are talking at the podium, and we kind of request the guy, and, and Tennessee will bring him to us, and I asked Jared what Skeens was doing so well, and he said he's sh- struggled, and I use that with quotation marks, it's, it's Paul Skeens, but maybe the the one thing you can nitpick is he hasn't always landed his, his changeup or, or thrown it with great command consistently all season. And that changeup was just absolutely phenomenal last night to, to coincide with the fastball. And and when a pitcher has to change up working along with a, a triple digit fastball, I mean, that that's really, really tough to hit.
1: Yeah. He was pitching backwards in that he was using that to get ahead. And then he was going with the fastball to strike. So traditional batting approach against somebody who throws hard, is jump be ready for that first one right and you know most of our barrels were kind of like that where we were we were sold out for fastball and we got it and we were able to get the head out on it um but when he's going when he's going first pitch change up to all the lefties in the lineup and flipping in a breaking ball um for strike one then he's kind of got you right where he needs you and that you still have to Kind of sell out for the fastball. Um, and it, it can make you re- look really stupid if, if he goes to the off speed. Um, so he, you know, they definitely had a good plan, but you're right. He, um, he hasn't always been able to, to locate that change up as much. He, I, if I remember correctly watching him a couple times, he's used that as more of a strikeout pitch, um, where he would get ahead with fastball and then, and then punch guys out with that because it's, you know, What's his change up? 90 miles an hour? Um, so 10 mile an hour difference from a hundred is, is a really good differential. But I mean, it's still 90, which is a, a good heater for most people. Um, so yeah, you know, I thought he was a pitcher last night and, and really all season, he was a pitcher rather than a thrower, meaning that he kind of pitched like a, like a crafty right hander, but with all the power stuff. Um, so. You know, I think I think that was a good plan because Tennessee's approach was obviously to attack and to not be passive. And and we saw guys swing through off speed early in the count, which is actually what you want to do. You don't want to if you're out front and you're beat, you don't want to, you know, stick your bottom out and just try to make contact with no strikes. Like get your get your full swing off, swing through it because you weren't going to get a solid contact anyways. Um and then and then get ready for the next pitch and and try to you know once you get to two strikes it's different but you know for the most part i didn't see a horrible approach i saw a couple at bats where we were just super overmatched and most of them were were when he was able to get ahead with the off speed because then you're kind of like well where's he going to go now and you can't be in that position when a guy has dominant stuff whether it's still lander skeens or anybody that throws that upper 90s fastball and and has something to to tunnel off of it so it um it was a tough like especially in those middle innings he was really kind of cruising through and that's when LSU was kind of able to extend if we could have kept it at like that two three range into the sixth or seventh um then maybe it turns out differently but like I said they had some bleeders get through and they were able to put some big swings on it at the right time so it's just one of those days where things, you know, didn't go your way. I really did think we played um pretty well. I thought some some swings we took were really good. Let's talk about Hunter Ensley, man. What a day that guy had. Um I think he was two for two off skeins at one point and then uh hits the hits the big two run homer to get us back in the game to a really hard part of the field to hit a home run. I think it ended up being like four hundred and twelve feet. Um so that was good to see, but we pretty much, you know, Dickie hit the ball hard. Um, oh, and that's the other thing I was going to say about the, the outfield shading. They had him played basically on the line. Um, and he kept, you know, filleting some balls out there to him. So they obviously had the, in an outfield that big, you kind of have to pick your spot. And if they beat you, then, then it was probably going to get down anyways. Um, so that was a good job by them by shading, shading several guys correctly and, um, you know, going with the percentages there. Uh, kind of lost my train of thought. I was going with, uh, I was, oh, I was talking about the middle of the order. Um, Dickie, Zane, Merritt, Burke, that kind of three through seven slots that we have, we just didn't get a whole lot, um, from it. And it's really hard for us to win when, when that doesn't happen. I mean, yeah, that's a lot of leadership and a lot of thump in that middle part of the order. Um, so, you know, to beat Stanford, I, we probably need a little bit more production out of those guys, just calling a spade a spade.
0: Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and, you know, I, I know Tennessee fans don't want to hear it put that way, but, I mean, last night was just more about Paul Skeens than than it was Tennessee. I mean, he is, a again, a generational talent. He's probably going to be in the big leagues in like a year, year and a half. And if if he was a reliever like a Garrett Crochet or a Ben Joyce, like he would probably get called up at the end of this season. If he was, especially if he gets picked by a, a contender, now he's going so high that maybe that team wouldn't rush him to to the big leagues. Uh, but like for a starting pitcher, how close he is to the big leagues for a college guy is, is kind of unheard of. It's become a a little more common in this new era of, of college baseball because college baseball is doing such a great job of developing guys. but that that was my point is like that was essentially a big leaguer pitching against a college baseball team. And that that to me was more so about last what last night was about than than Tennessee playing poorly that that wasn't the same Tennessee team that played in Baton Rouge earlier this season is I guess what I'm I'm getting to but uh, again I know Tennessee fans don't want to hear that it is the College World Series at, at some point you got to find a way to to win these games Tennessee has now lost six straight at the College World Series uh, Tony Vitello's teams now oh and three they'll look to change that on um, Monday afternoon against Stanford I know I'm sorry I didn't want to say it either I feel like I need some mouthwash uh, right now the last thing I want to touch on that, that really pertains to last night's game will um, before we catch a break and kind of turn the page to to Stanford is and I know ten, I want to bring this up because I know Tennessee fans listening have said it to themselves at least two or three times the umpire was not good last night he was not it, it was it was a bad display by the home plate umpire Uh there, there were several pitches uh, on the white where the white of the other batter's box that were called strikes that absolutely dictated the outcome of it bats. And it, it seemed, and I, I hate being this guy. I don't like it, but it, I think if we went back and, and charted it, I think it would turn out to, to be true. But to, to the, to the eye test, it seemed like Tennessee was getting called for those pitches well off the plate and LSU was not. I mean, that, that's just, that's just how it felt in, in real time. And and there's several examples. Uh, there's one to Maui Ahuna. There's one to Christian Moore. There's one to Zane Denton. And and you don't see Zane Denton get irritated and, and talk back to the umpire. And that pitch was so far off the plate that he turned around and said something to the umpire on his way back to the dugout. The one to, to Christian Moore to strike out uh, in the top of the eighth after – uh, ensley's homer. I guess dickie had just beat out the the infield single, and, and Semo was up. That ball was low and off the plate. It was not a strike. Uh, and and it begs the question. I I and I kind of said this. On one hand, yes, will the umpire was not good. It seemed one sided, and he seemed kind of chapped as well. I had somebody tell me that the umpire asked. Tony Vitello, how he was doing like in the midst of the game, I guess in between innings and like Tony went out to, to talk to him and the umpire was like, how are we doing? Are we okay? And he says, well, I'm doing fine. I mean, the other guy's throwing triple digits in and you're kind of giving our guys a, 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 a squeeze up there at, at the plate, or you're giving our guys a, a big zone when we're hitting. And then when my guys on the mound, my guys are telling me that, that you're squeezing him and then Tony got an got a, a warning for saying that. When the umpire called him out there to talk to him and ask him how he was doing, and Tony ends up getting a warning for for balls and strikes. I I thought that was an interesting story that that someone passed along to me and i I did not think that was a a a great reflection on the umpire behind the plate so on one hand like yes the umpire was bad and inconsistent the only thing he was consistent with last night was how inconsistently bad he was uh but on the other hand as you know will heflin it's kind of the old adage in in baseball at some point you have to make an adjustment so like that pitch to simo was absolutely a ball but how do you walk the fine line of? not wanting to get yourself into a funk by swinging at bad pitches because the umpire is, is calling them poorly, but also making an adjustment and knowing that the umpire has had a, a large strike zone and he's been calling that bad pitch a strike all night. Like walking that fine line is a difficult thing to do, but I do think in that moment you have to recognize that and and maybe take the bat off of your shoulder.
1: Yeah, that's just hard for me. Um, because you don't have time to process that like when a pitch is coming you're like oh that's a ball but this guy's got a big zone so I'm gonna swing anyways like if it's a ball registered in your head you're not swinging um so it's it's way easier said than done to do that I'm not gonna comment on the umpire from last night uh, I think you know what you said was was probably accurate um but that's just kind of One of my things, especially being a coach and and a former player, I just I refuse to talk about it. It doesn't surprise me that that the warning with V happened. Here's my here's my problem. Okay, the job of a referee and an an official and an umpire is to a make calls and b be a mediator, de-escalator, right? It sounds to me like there might have, might have been some ego there, which is the worst thing you can have in any sport. But especially baseball, when there's generally more um communication and back and forth than it, than in some other sports. Um Basketball being another one that's kind of similar where they can, you know, get real close during downtime and have conversations. Um This is the thing about umpiring. A, it's not. It's not recruited well enough um the the most talented umpires possible umpires are not umpires they're either coaches or they go do something else um you know it's especially at the at the youth level it's very scarce there's not enough of them um so the ones that they do have are are overworked and they're just not very good um and so you probably see that trickle up to the to the college uh, ranks maybe not so much at, at the professional ranks but you know i just don't think i don't think there's enough good umpires because there's not enough in general um and i don't think they do a great job of giving players that are at the end of their careers like hey this is an option for you and this can be a good career path um which i think is kind of a shame because most of the most of the best possible officials in any sport our former players and a lot of a lot of the umpires that you see they they really didn't even play the game like they don't know like that guy probably never saw 100 mile an hour fastball in his entire playing career like he may not have played past little league i don't know maybe he played in the big leagues but i don't know the guy so that's my that's my only two cents about it i'm not going to comment on the way it was called during the game because you have to take what is called and move on which is the hardest thing to do. But I will say that Tony and Frank both have been so good this year at just refraining from blowing up over a single call because they that could have very easily turned into the Texas game of last year where Kivit's thrown out.
0: I thought it was going to
1: this. And you see, you see it get even worse after that. Right. And so he's, he's trying to be political and hold his ground and, you know, maybe we'll get some calls late and you just didn't. And that's, you know, it's whatever for me, honestly. And I, I hate to put it that way, but like, it's, it doesn't surprise me. Uh The most frustrating part is that you had to hear skiing, skiing, skeins all dang week. And it's like, are we not tired of that? Like, do we not want to just punch this guy in the mouth? And I know we did, but it, it just didn't happen and like that's so frustrating and I hope they take that frustration out on on Stanford on Monday.
0: I, th- I think you absolutely hit the nail on, on the head. Umpiring is a, is a impossible task quite frankly and you, you see videos on social media nearly every day at the Little League level or high school level you're at an AAU tournament right now. Uh, just the these parents that absolutely scold umpires. Uh, and it's not even their day job, most of them. And uh, it's it's not like they have round-the-clock training. Uh, So I I don't know why anybody would want to sign up to be an umpire because of the scolding that they can kind of get at times. So I I completely agree with you. And anybody who has listened to me long enough knows that I am uh, anti-penalty vulture. I I do not like blaming the refs or, or even really talking about the refs. Uh, Or umpires, I I try to stay away from that conversation because I I think it can be an emotional one in terms of reacting to a a loss uh, to the team that you're a fan of or or the team that you follow or cover. Uh, But last night felt different than just, you know, the difficulties of of a referee or the the difficulties of an umpire. You know, LSU probably still wins the game, even if um, those calls are, are called correctly uh, because Paul Skeens is Paul Skeens and was Paul Skeens last night, but uh, it, it did feel like it had, uh, it, it it was it was something that stuck out, uh, even if you know the nature of umpiring uh, wasn't or isn't easy. It, it was it was kind of obvious in the moment, and it, I mean it did have an impact on a couple of those at bats. I mean Zane Denton walks, Christian Moore walks. If and the the thing is they're not like close calls either; like they were obvious balls well off the plate and I, I think that was the frustrating part and also like you said the most frustrating part is it seemed like there was a little ego involved so uh, there were some positives to take away and Tennessee will need to build on those positives when it takes on Stanford on Monday at 2 p.m eastern on ESPN and after we take a quick break we will touch on those positives but in the meantime we'll be back here in just a moment on the Diamond balls podcast on goballs 247com Welcome back into the Diamond Balls podcast on GoVols247.com. I am Ben McKee coming coming to you live from my hotel lobby in Omaha, Nebraska, following Tennessee's loss to LSU on Saturday night at the College World Series. Happy Father's Day to everybody listening and to those dads listening on this Father's Day. We certainly appreciate your support. And if you don't mind supporting us a little bit more, we would greatly appreciate it if you went and liked, rate, rated, and reviewed our podcast. That would greatly help us, and we would greatly appreciate it as well. Uh, Mr. Heflin, Tennessee's season is now on the line. Not the first time its, it's season has has been on the line. Uh, Tennessee handled that adversity well uh, last weekend, but, boy, is this weekend going to be a different beast, or this week, I should say. Uh, Because as we mentioned off the top, Tennessee now has to play Stanford on Monday, which is a a very, very good program. And then if they win that one, then they have to turn around and play the loser of Wake Forest LSU and another elimination game. And then if they manage to win that one, then they play the winner of Wake Forest and LSU and have to beat Wake Forest or LSU twice with its season on the line so it it is it is quite the task now Tennessee does have the the pitching depth to to make it through it and uh, I I don't know that I think Wake Forest certainly has the pitching depth to to make it through a a loser's bracket in this College World Series and and who knows if Tennessee reels off a couple of W's maybe they end up facing Paul Skeens again which would not be great uh, but LSU I don't think has the pitching depth uh to to make it through the losers bracket like a Tennessee and, and I don't think Stanford does either. Now now Stanford is throwing its ace, uh, Quinn Matthews, uh, on Monday. And that that'll that'll be an interesting to to see how that plays out. But uh that Stanford pitching staff as a whole, it, it struggles with command at times and, and and gives quite a bit of free passes. Uh, and just a quick aside, the the talent level on Tennessee's side of the bracket, and again, it's the College World Series. Every team's going to be great, but in D one's preseason rankings, it's number one LSU, number two Tennessee. I think Wake Forest was three or four. Six. And, well, where was Stanford? I thought Stanford was six.
1: Oh, you're maybe you're right. It's I, they're all in the top seven.
0: Yes. So, <laughs> talk about shout out to D one for for nailing that on the head. Uh, but it, it's going to be a, a a tough week for Tennessee. But again, it's, it's a college world series. That that's what you're going to get. Uh, but first and foremost, it's going to be Chase Dolander versus Quinn Matthews on, on Monday, and and I'm very very interested to see how that uh, matchup plays out. And, and obviously, there's some things to wonder about with Chase Dolander, but with Quinn, like the guy's coming off throwing like 2,000 pitches last weekend, and he got some extra rest. But I, I kind of wonder how. How crisp is he gonna be?
1: Yeah. Well, you just ran around all the bases. You gave me like seven things to think about. <laughs> but uh no, let me let me start by saying this. I hope the listeners can hear a noticeable change of tone in my voice. We got through the recap, which sucked and it was tough. Um, but now it's forward, and yes, our season is on the line, but I'm excited to see this baseball team fight, and it certainly will be tough. There have been 12 national champions to uh, lose their opener. Most recent was in 2018. Oregon State lost 11-1 to to Miami in their first game of Omaha and then came back and Ultimately won it in game three against Arkansas in the championship series. If you remember correctly, there was a a drop fly ball, which um, maybe we don't want to talk about too much in case Tony Vitello hears the clip. He was on that staff. Um, But before that, South Carolina did it. um, And also Oregon State again in 2006, I believe, uh, won it after losing game one. So it has happened. It's a tough road. You do have the benefit of today being an off day, so you should have most of your most of your arms at full go or at least close to it, with the exception of Lindsay and maybe Halverson. Um but like you said, it'll be it'll be the Dolander Burns show, I'm sure. And we are seeing a very capable arm in Quinn Matthews, who I enjoyed watching throw against Texas a lot. Quite literally a lot 156 pitches and we'll see if that is part of the story uh tomorrow he may feel good and he may feel okay but like he's still a human body right he's not a robot um so we'll see if that affects how sharp he is maybe later in the game maybe at first not a factor because of adrenaline and i'm sure his recovery work ethic and process is is on point coming from a smart school like Stanford is um but yeah man I I just really think I really think this team the way their season is gone and the way the roster is built is kind of built for what's in front of them and that's just fight for your life and try to make it to the next day and we can't think about having to beat either Wake or LSU twice to get to the championship series we just got to look at what's in front of us which is a tough lefty um and a good Stanford baseball team and find a way to win on, on Monday. And that's, you know, that's really simply put, we can dig into the ins and outs of the game, but it starts with Doe and um I think he kind of needs to go with the Drew Beam tactic on Monday or that Drew had in the Supers and just go all out until you can't anymore and try to get that ball to Chase Burns with, you know, a tie game or a lead at some point.
0: I, I was going to ask you about Chase Dolander and and what you think he needs to to do in order to to be successful. Uh, because it, it look it's I love Chase Dolander. I like the guy. Him and I have developed a a neat relationship in terms of just strictly media member covering a guy that frequently talks uh, to the media. He, he always says hello, asks me how I'm doing, things of that nature. Uh, he's a a great dude. But it has been a a roller coaster of a season for him uh, and probably has not played out the way that he envisioned it would prior to the season. He's been much better uh, the last month, month and a half. But even with that last month, month and a half, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster at times Uh, that that game against Clemson. um, There's a little bit of inconsistency there early. And that's been more of the the storyline i guess with chase is is just kind of those early innings and and getting through them uh, it, it's been rare unfortunately for chase when when he has cruised through those early innings uh even last weekend against southern miss he he was awesome in terms of his outing as a whole but southern miss jumped out to a a four-nothing lead and part of it was a three-run bomb that a, a kid hit off the scoreboard uh, and chase was able to settle down after that but uh, I think it's obvious that like Chase needs to get off to a good start. How does he need to get off to a good start and not allow that big early inning?
1: Yeah, I agree, and that was kind of my point of just go all out and try to get the ball to Burns. If he, if he can give us five and he's at 100 pitches and just grinded five, and keeps it, you know, a scoreless game or, or one or two runs by Stanford. Um, You know, I w I won't know how many we've scored. I'm just saying, you know, keep them from like zero to two runs. Then I'm good with that. I think the mentality for him could be treat it like you're closing, like try to make that first inning feel like the ninth, and just almost have a reliever mentality because you know you're gonna have a shorter leash than normal because it's elimination. You know that you've came out of the gates a little bit slow this year, but that's not really um that's not really how it's been for his entire career. It's just kind of the way some balls have bounced for him this way. So I don't think, you know, it should be a worry for him. It should just be, hey, I'm gonna take a little bit different mentality into this game. And here's here's the exciting part for him because Stuff wise, everybody knows he's a top ten pick, and like he could throw bad tomorrow, not make it out of the first inning, give up eighteen hundred runs, and he's still going to go in the first round. But it's still an opportunity for him to improve his stock. And I think I think what scouts are looking for from him has nothing to do with with the spin rate on his fastball or or the velocity. It's like, hey, what's he going to do with this big opportunity in big games? Because one of the things they're looking for is guys that can help him win a world series and world series is obviously you know the the mecca of the sport of baseball um so it's a real good opportunity for him to improve his stock and maybe go a pick or two higher but where he's getting selected that's a big difference in terms of money um every every pick is is uh is different so it's certainly an opportunity for him to to help himself and help the team but you know for me I would just treat it as like hey this first inning is the ninth and then the second inning is the ninth when I get there and then the third inning is the ninth when I get there and if he's out of gas by the fifth and he gave us every single bolt that he had then I'm cool with that you know and I think he just has to realize that um he may get deep into this game he may not but the more zeros that he can put up gives us a better shot to win which is super obvious but you know what I mean
0: and to me, it seems like the slider kind of has to be working for him, similar to to Drew Beam and the curveball, and and even Chase Burns and the slider. Because when when teams tee off on those guys, it's because they're they're sitting on the fastball and and not really respecting that that secondary pitch, and and it's why you've seen Drew Beam and especially Chase Burns kind of take that next step and elevate their game here late in the season. Now now Burns has elevated the heater. I mean the, the kid was not throwing 101, 102 when he was starting, uh coming out of the bullpen kind of allows you uh to do that. And I'm I'm sure he made some mechanical adjustments as as well. But you've seen the slider be more consistent, have more break and be more of a, a strikeout pitch that gives hitters something to think about. And He's taking advantage of that. And then and then that makes the fastball even harder to to hit because they're they're worried about him maybe flipping over the, the slider at him. And then the same for, for Drew Beam, in the, the curveball. I mean that that curveball and the way it's played the last couple of weeks has absolutely allowed him to take his game to the next level because teams teams are aware that probably his his best attribute, and maybe it's changed now, but to me, his best attribute was was and is his command and his ability to dot the fastball to either side of the plate on the black. And and when he's flipping over a curveball the way he has the last couple of weeks, I mean that, that's a hard task uh for hitters. So I think the same logic applies to Dolander. Teams get geared up for that fastball, and when the slider's not working, they just spit on the slider. They they don't they don't fool with it, they're not worried about it, and, and they tee off on that ninety-seven, ninety-eight heater that's over the plate and that that's why you see some of the the home runs that have been hit off of, of Dolan Dolander this season. So to me, I, I think he's got to have that slider kind of rocking and rolling. it. And look, it, it's not all on Chase Dolander. Uh the, the offense is going to have to produce and uh here here comes that left handed storyline once again. But I don't know, Will it kind of seems like outside of maybe Caden Grice, Tennessee has done Fairly well uh, against the the better left handed pitchers that that they've faced this season. It seems like more of the the unknown, crafty lefty out of the back end of the bullpen that they're not expecting to to throw against them has been the one that that has has give, given them issues. And they they know what's coming with, with Quinn Matthews uh, on on Monday and talking to, to how many pitches he's thrown recently. I have a hard time. Believing that that he's going to be just in in tip top shape and tip top form, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe he'll give me the middle finger, but I I think it's important. Like Chase needs to get off to a strong start. The offense needs to maybe throw an an early blow at Stanford as well to maybe put some doubt in the back of Quinn Matthews head, put some doubt in in the back of of Stanford's team and and Stanford's coaching staff, and give Chase a a, a little a little room to work because that's when Chase Dolander seems to be at his best when he's able to kind of, you know, take a deep breath from that, that tension that's there at the beginning of the game and just go be himself. And I think the offense could really help him do that uh, by, by providing a big swing early.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And you're right. If we, if we were able to throw a jab early, maybe uh one, two or three spot in the first few innings, then maybe Doe changes his approach and it's like, okay, I'm going to get settled in and rattle off five, six innings in a row that like are really kind of like we You're saw. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like we saw. Um, but that's all game dependent. And I don't think you have to score first to win. We've certainly not, we've certainly seen in Omaha so far that there's been comebacks and there's always crazy games. And I thought last night was kind of shaping up to be another one. Um, But it definitely helps. And if we can, if we can get out to a lead, then I think you could see Doe really stomp on their throat. And maybe, maybe if Matthews isn't quite as sharp and leaves one out over the plate and we punish him early. Um, then he's kind of second guessing himself, maybe thinking, Oh, well, you know, I feel fine, but it's just not coming out the same. And then he presses and then he, you know, maybe walks a guy or two. Um, so an early jab can do a lot for this team not only for the offense but but also for Dolander. I think that's a really good point.
0: We'll we'll see how it plays out. It'll certainly be fun. I mean at some point Tennessee's going to have to to get off the snide and, and win one of these games in, in in Omaha. I know you're not a fan of of what happened the, the last go around, so hopefully for Tennessee's sake they can uh change that tide and and get in the win column as uh No you're
1: you're totally right. I'd love to say. You're totally right. And getting to Omaha is a big accomplishment. Um, But I mentioned last week that Vitello is not interested in just getting there and being happy we're there. Right. He he has really big aspirations and and everybody on this team and and the fan base and within the program does as well. Um And for whatever reason, it just hasn't gone gone our way yet. But you can you can. Redirect that narrative very quickly. If you can rattle off a few, uh, this coming week, especially with the competition in front of you to do it against. I think, um, I think it'll go a long way. You just gotta, you just gotta find a way to win one, man. And then you never know. And one of, one of my, uh, fellow coaches who's got the 17 U AAU diamond team down here said last night, he said, don't let the balls win. Uh, this one, he actually played it at Mississippi state. But um, you know, I won't hold that against him. He said, "If the balls win Monday, look out." And that's not a Tennessee fan. No bias there. So we'll um, I you know, it's I kind of agree with him. Don't don't let them win one because when this team gets a little bit a little bit of comfort, a little bit of confidence, they can they seem to rattle off two, three, four in a row and make it look really easy at times. Um So don't let them win Monday because they might uh. They might get hot.
0: Yeah, don't don't let the balls get hot, which uh, college baseball has allowed I co- them. I hate
1: copying. I hate copying that saying, but
0: I love it though. It, I it I hate copying true. it too, but it's all like it's an awesome saying. Like Mike Elko. Like that's just
1: such a. It's such a basic saying, Tim, but him. the fact that Ole Miss kind of coined it stinks because people have been saying that for years, and now I think about it every time it comes out of my mouth or somebody's mouth. But like, what else are you supposed to say? You know.
0: Uh, real quick before we get out of here, any quick thoughts on, on today's game? TCU and Virginia will play in an elimination game uh here at one o'clock Central Time. And then tonight, uh Florida and Oral Roberts. That that should be a, a pretty fun game. I, I would think that Florida wins that, but with the the underdog Cinderella story that is Oral Roberts, that that'll be a fun matchup.
1: Yeah, I really like Walder for Florida. I just think that swing Langford took the other night. Oh my goodness. Um TCU was my pick to win that side. They obviously blew a three run lead in the ninth to Oral. I'll go I'll go TCU to stay alive just so I, you know, don't look like I'm backing out of that pick already. Um, but I think I think Florida handles business against Oral. And I, I really like I really like that team. They show a lot of grit, but I just don't know. I just don't think that's a great matchup because arguably Waldrop is the better guy between him and Sproat. So I'll take Florida and TCU tonight.
0: I'm taking Virginia and Florida. I, I, I hate to eliminate your. Uh, no, that's your, fair. Your pick I, on that I, side, but Virginia has been red hot. I mean, TCU has been equally red hot, if not more red hot. But I, I, I think Virginia is a, a better baseball team than TCU simply.
1: They are probably, and it's hard to recover from blowing a three-run lead in the ninth. But heck, Oral blew a eight-nothing lead, and here they are. So,
0: Virginia also blew a lead in the ninth. Not not sure what uh, Virginia's coach was was thinking about there, as Florida was just teen off on on the pitcher there in the ninth inning. But uh, TCU and Virginia certainly kicking themselves with how their openers in the College World Series played out. Tennessee will be back in action on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern on ESPN against Stanford. And we will have plenty of coverage of it at govals247.com. We will also be back with a podcast on Monday at some point. Obviously last night was a late night, so just decided to to kick the pod to Sunday morning. And Will, know you're crazy busy. Certainly appreciate your time and joining us and, and giving us some some more of your great insight.
1: Absolutely man go Valls
0: and to all the dads out there listening on Father's Day, happy Father's Day to you and we certainly appreciate your ears and your support for will Heflin I am Ben McKee. this has been another edition of the Diamond vols podcast on go vols twenty four seven
2: there's that button and now I can say thank you for listening to this edition of the go vols twenty four seven podcast. We always say that, but we always mean it thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find all of us on social media. I'm Wes Rucker 24 7 on Twitter. Ben McKee is Ben McKee 14 on Twitter. Ryan Callahan is Ryan Callahan 24 7 on Twitter. And Patrick Brown is P Brown 24 7 ...for less than the price of one mediocre lunch per month. That is all that it costs, and that's after a quick free trial... And once you pay us that reasonable rate, which is, again, less than one mediocre lunch per month, you get access in perpetuity to Paramount Plus, uh, which is an excellent, growing behemoth of a streaming arm there with us here at CBS, Paramount, Viacom, etc. You get every show CBS has ever made commercial-free. You get new movies. You get classic movies that rotate in every single month. Uh, You also get just tons of original content, tons of great original Paramount Plus content. And you also uh, get access to the vaults of uh, Nickelodeon, uh, Smithsonian, uh, MTV, BET, Comedy Central—something for the entire family. All of that, all of that, for less than the price of one mediocre lunch per month. That—that is so much stuff. So much stuff. That's a bunch of stuff. Less than one lunch a month. That's all that it costs. So go to govaults247.com and do that. Take advantage of that. Tell your friends to go do that. Again.